people, you can make a living from judo. You know what I mean? Like you can make a living from judo where 10 years ago, like to make a living from judo, it was like, no, we don't make a living from judo. It's volunteer based. Like what? Right, but you right. go, no, no, if we can make a living, we can impact way more people's lives and run a better service. Right. And it actually does a judo community a service as well. All right. Hello. I'm with Matt DeKino and um, finally getting to meet him in person. And the thing, if you haven't met or seen or watched video, is the way that I refer to you is like the OG for making uh, online content for judo. And so one thing that's really interesting to me, obviously, you're also an Olympic athlete for Australia. But um, it's, it's really interesting to know what got you doing that when really people weren't especially for judo, that wasn't really happening at the time. So yeah, I'd love yeah. to know how that how that got started for you. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm the OG. I think Roddy's up there, Roddy Ferguson. He's right. pretty close. He's right. definitely before me. And there was that other guy that ran the judo info, Neil Oakelhamp. Oakelhamp from England. He did a lot of content. Okay. But I did maybe video content. But right, yeah, right. I kind of, yeah, I kind of got into video content um, and blogging and stuff um, for three reasons. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was kind of all kind of happening at the same time sort of thing. So the first one was I used to do one-on-ones teaching people judo. Right. And then I would teach them, you know, judo. And then a week later, I'd be like, do you remember what we did last week? They're like, no. Nah. So then I, they'd spend right. 20 minutes of the one hour session rehashing what we did the week later. So then I filmed it, chucked it online. I said, hey, make sure you watch those videos that we did last week and then refresh you. So when I come in to teach you the next one-on-one, -on -one, we have, you, you've kind of refreshed your brains. That was the first reason. And then people started inboxing me going, I love that Ogoshi video. It was so good. I'm going, really? Like, it's just like basics. And, um, and so then I started making more uh, content. That was the first one. And secondly, I just learned some stuff really late on in my judo career that was basic information to all these other people. Like I learned, I remember I was at a training camp and I said to this other uh, Morgan, one of the Australians, I said, what do you do when someone's like top gripping you? And I've got an inside grip, but I'm getting crushed. And he said, mate, what are you doing? Like, you don't put your hand here. It's got to be up at the ear. You got to put your, you know, and that right. way they can't crush you in. And I was like, Oh, he's like, how do you not know this? I'm like, I don't know. No one's taught me that. Right. So I started kind of whacking content up to help people educate people, I guess, earlier than what I got educated at. So now I've got green belts that know more grip fighting than I knew as a black belt because of all the content that I can chuck online and other people as well. So that's kind of how I got kind of involved in it, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's funny too, the, as someone that's done judo their whole life as well, there's certain things that naturally get learned that aren't necessarily taught to us that have incredible power. So as an example, I was teaching a class and I had an older gentleman, he hadn't done judo in 25 years, decided to come back to judo to put his kids in it. They did it for a couple of years and then they trailed off, but he stuck around. So he's 52 years old doing judo, awesome, in the best shape of his life. And he says to me at one point, what do you do about stiff arms? And it's funny as a as a high performance joker, when you're competing internationally, that's not really the question that you think of like stiff arms at some point in your life, it goes away. It's yeah. sort of how I think of it. No one ever taught me, Hey, when someone has a stiff arm, this is what you do. It just, it sort of goes away as you compete. And then I went, I don't know here, take a grip and stiff arm me. So he takes a grip, stiff arms me. I go, what would I do here? Oh, this, you know, this little thing. And I went, ah, that's what I do. But so much of the things that we learn, it's from mimicking other people or naturally happens. And then we've done it so long, we sort of forget when it went away. That went away from me 20 years ago or whatever. Yeah. yeah. yeah and even when, you, even when you teach it, you're highlighting these five things, 
but you're actually doing another five things that you don't even know you're doing. And then the other right. people are doing it and you're like, right. that doesn't look like mine. I know I said that, right. but it just doesn't. <laughs> right. Come here, come here. Then you right. do it and then they do it. And you're like, come back. Right. Oh, I forgot to mention this, this, and this. And that's right. the hardest part of teaching is like, that's why like when I like when I do my DVDs, you try to systematize it. Like right. you can layer up and that's the skill of teaching, isn't it? Doing is one thing. Right. The skill of teaching is another. Trying to go, what am I, what am I naturally doing that I don't know that I'm doing? And that's called tacit knowledge, I think. And right. Tacit knowledge yeah, the, the thing that's funny, it, I had the exact same experience. I remember I was explaining to someone the importance of what I wanted them to do with Coach Igari. And I was taking this little step that I didn't even realize I was taking. And the person goes, what'd you do there? And I went, what do you mean? I didn't do anything. No, 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 there, you did it. You Look, you did it again. And the one thing that's interesting as well is um, like you, um, part of our introduction prior to this, I guess, is we were both blogging, making videos. You shared one of my armbar videos that I had made different ways to deal with someone locking up a juji is that when you record it, it's a very honest version of what you're really doing. So you mm. can think, because someone told you even, it might be subconscious, this is the importance of this technique. But then when you do it and you watch it and you see a video of yourself doing it, actually, that's not the part that I'm emphasizing when I actually perform it properly. And so when you see the video, then you see all those little things that you don't even realize. Um, yeah. So that's another layer of learning that I found from making those videos is like, actually, when I think I did a good one, it's actually something else that I'm emphasizing. Yes, yes. I know once I was filming my, I just filmed a Randori session uh, at the club like a like fly on the wall sort of camera. Right. And then I'm really watching it. I'm like, what, what was I thinking there? What am I doing? You know, right. did you see they do like those live commentaries where they, they commentate as they're, as they're kind of sparring or they're doing roles or Nawaza. Right. And I'm like, I, sometimes I've watched myself. I'm like, I didn't attack once in like five minutes. What am I possibly, right. Right. I'm so lazy. Like what the heck? It's so funny, isn't it? Right. And yeah. I, I spoke to, um, uh, recently I did a podcast with Emilio Centracchio. So he does judo data. So I don't know if you've seen his website or not, but he's, it's pretty cool. So he's producing these baseball statistics for judo for the entire international tour, every event. He's now doing the European championships and the Pan Am championships for the first time ever, but he does the whole year, um, IGF tour. And the thing that he mentioned that was funny in that same regard is talking to high performance athletes about what they think the success rate of their throw is. Oh, my, my Uchimata is deadly. I throw with it 40% of the time when I attack. Well, actually, you throw about 10% of the time, you know, that kind of thing. Or yeah. we think of ourselves as an aggressive fighter, maybe. And then you do a video review of your tournament and you go, huh, now I know why I got, you know, those Shitos. Like, we're very good liars at what to ourselves, right? Like We, we yeah. like to sometimes see like, how could this possibly happen to me? I was doing so great. And then you watch it and you're like, I didn't attack in five minutes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All you know, those ones are like, oh, I lost by a Yuko. You're like, that was a big Yuko, but you would know. I lost by a penalty, but that right. was a big penalty. Like you were nowhere near winning that yeah. match. Right, right, right. Yeah. I just lost my the small Yuko, man. I was so close. But right. You were. Right. It was a long. Yeah. The, the other way, I mean, as ridiculous and cheesy as a line as it is, too, there is the Fast and Furious line. It doesn't matter if you lose by an inch or a mile or whatever he says, you exactly. know, some cheesy Vin Diesel line, but it's true to agree. It's like, uh, it's the, the end result is important. And just because you only won by a little, well, maybe someone held on to that score. Maybe they played more defensively and they didn't dust you because they didn't feel the need to, or they're preparing for the next match or whatever it is. So yeah, that's like, uh, that's pretty interesting. The, so the other, the other part that I was interested in as, as um, a Canadian 
um, we obviously have a certain amount of judo that that is alive and well and coming out of uh, COVID. But I was curious what the what the scene is like in Australia. Like how 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 big is judo in Australia? What's the do you have any idea how many people practice judo and? Yeah, so I think we in judo we in Australia we have um uh kind of three or four federations, but the judo the one attached to the IJF is the biggest one. I think it's maybe six or seven thousand members, um which is the um yeah is kind of the main one, and then the other federations have maybe five hundred or three hundred. They fizzle off pretty quick. So the one attached to OJU, Oceana, and then attached to IJF is about six seven thousand members, which I think is the biggest it's ever been, kind of around now. Like it's the biggest our federation's ever been right um yeah so that's pretty cool uh, i think what's helped is a lot more clubs becoming full-time a lot of athletes now turning to judo and, and like myself and evo de santos another olympian dennis iverson daniel kelly uh, right. all running kind of dojos now so yeah that's kind of our um our numbers we, right. the, our, our, we have the biggest competition for us is the big four uh like you guys would have like ice hockey, baseball, maybe American football. I don't know about in Canada, but yep. in Australia, you have soccer, rugby league, rugby union, Australian football, which is another one. So we've got like uh, four football codes and then basketball and netball. So they're kind of the right. major six and cricket. So they're the major right. six sports that are kind of defeating judo. Yeah. The two things you mentioned that make me giggle a little, number one is cricket. The one sport that is not understood by North Americans in any way at all, other than thinking it has a funny name. And then the other one is uh, ice hockey. As a Canadian, we just call it hockey, but so much of the world calls it ice hockey, which stands oh, out funny. as like a funny way to us because hockey is on ice, but I guess it's it's often referred to as ice hockey. Um, what's the... So I know of, uh, for instance, at the moment, there's the Katz brothers, but um, in terms of like the high performance group, is that something that you've seen building, growing uh, as your time as a former Olympian yourself and being connected to that program? Yeah, like I was even talking to one of my friends who went to Beijing with me. I just felt like how, how broken we are <laughs> um, compared to the next generation are way more elite in sports science, recovery, right. judo. Um, I think they're more highly skilled, more tactical, and just physically just way better. I think um, our kind of uh, generation is kind of that brute force, that Japanese system of just more randories, like right. just you know, national training camps were just 20 rounds of five minutes every day, six days right. a week. And the sports scientists were like, maybe we should like dial it back a little bit like shut up you know nothing about judo that's what they do in japan but now the now the new generation of coaches are going okay sports scientist what should we be doing and right. let's work together and bring some sports science into the training camps right um and so i think that's really carried over so i think now the the elite the elite guys now are much more elite than us i think um in terms of just overall professionalism um, right so yeah I, th I i think for instance, like understanding recovery has become a huge thing. There's a lot of people studying sleep now. And um, I remember reading and writing about um, the Toronto Blue Jays, for instance, creating these sleep corridors in all their facilities all over the place. Because if you're not recovered, it doesn't matter. And there's um, there's a Andrew Huberman one that talks about it. And there's another guy that wrote a book. I can't think of his name right now, but he made a reference to the fact that if you sleep six hours a night instead of eight hours a night on average, and you're a male, then you have the testosterone production of someone 10 years your senior. So you're literally aging yourself 10 years by sleeping six hours instead of eight hours a night, which can be affected 
by just fixing your sleep, just getting proper sleep. The other thing that uh, he referred to is there was a study by um, NCAA Division One or Division Two women's softball. So they had the softball teams. Um, they had them sleep 10 hours total a day. It didn't mean 10 hours at once, but it included napping. When they had them sleep 10 hours, they had a measurable improvement in the accuracy they throw a ball, the speed with which they run, the force with which they project a ball. Measurable just by sleeping that much more. And I think those are the types of things where exactly we had these like, you know, growing up in the 80s and people before, this is what you do. You just fight and brutalize and the last one standing becomes the best. But there's lots of ways to recover. And if you don't give your chance, yourself a chance to recover, you can't perform. Yeah. So true. I remember sleeping was so tough for me being an athlete. Like I'd grind my teeth every night because you're overtrained, you're stressed, right? You've got tournaments coming up, you got to get points for funding and all that stuff. As soon as I retired from competition, stop grinding my teeth, sleep right. like a baby. But right. I remember I did up all night with those meditation you know the waves or whatever just trying to sleep right. in the sh- because your body's overtrained and yeah. so you just can't you're just too tired to sleep yeah rather than rather than now you can map your sleeping and going oh my heart rate's up i'm gonna have this session off or dial it back a bit so i can mm-hmm. sleep better. it's long term it's going to be better for me so i think right. now that it's way more the science is just so much better yeah we're we, we get so overstimulated i used to have the worst time sleeping the night before so uh, I did something that I thought was really weird. And then it's now become a thing. I'm not pretending like I invented it. But when I was like yeah, 11, like- 12 years old, I was staying in a hotel. And as you know, hotel bathrooms, they never have a window, never have anything. So it's 12 at night, I'm fighting the next day, and I can't sleep. So I decided to have a bath in the pitch black. And I thought, this is weird, but I'm trying something. And I relaxed, it allowed me to like really calm became very meditative, it calmed me down, relaxed me a little bit. And then I went to bed and I fell asleep after and this became a pattern. And then years later, this is, you know, this would have been 1993 or something. And then years later, I start hearing guys like Joe Rogan talk about sensory deprivation tanks. And I went, Oh, it's not totally weird. I sort of accidentally fell into doing this sort of thing and how beneficial that can be. Um, Yeah, it's like, all of that stuff, like I literally couldn't sleep, you know, I'd be so excited about the tournament the next day, not necessarily excited in a good way, you know, anxiety slash excited. And I would just be rattling in bed, like trying to sleep. So yeah, I, that's, that's one that's like, and, and the other one to that same point in terms of just understanding things is me reading more about sports and other references of sports preparation and sports sciences is this is probably one you'll get in you'll get to is, you know, when you say, oh, you're getting ready for a judo match. And in Canada, they often call it a fight is you need to get amped up, right? Everybody needs to get amped up. So you should be listening to heavy metal or ACDC or whatever. You need to get amped up for that match. But in reality, some people are over amped up and it's anxiety. So just those little things, like maybe that person needs to listen to music to calm them because they're overstimulated where we automatically think since it's a fight, a fight, everybody needs to get revved up to go and what i wish i knew is i was one of those people that i should have been listening to mozart or something you know yeah. i think well at the start of my career i would be listening to lint biscuit lincoln park like right. young right and eminem and all that stuff all right. day right by the end of my career i'm listening to like pete murray switch foot like all these like chilled out right sort of music because you're right you get overstimulated. And um, just trying to just relax me. I remember my judo coach, I was at a US Open 
And he's yeah. literally standing there and he's gay. And that was one of my first trips. And they're like, uh, you know, Tom Hill, you're a fighting. It was actually his fight dad, Camilla. He's like, just walks, just, just walks on the mat. I'm like, he doesn't even warm up. He just walks right. on the mat. Like, right. Just realizing so many people have different styles of doing stuff. And yeah, but you actually saying to people like, this is what I do. This, this guy listens to Limp Biscuit. This guy listens to Mozart. Find what works for you. Like that's the right. biggest one. And to be able to go, yeah, are you over overly stimulated? Are you not stimulated enough? Like, right. And just kind of, yeah. Yeah, like if you feel like you're sleepy going into the match, then yeah, maybe you do need Limp Biscuit. You know, yeah. or maybe something new yeah. and more modern. You know, not two thousand. Yeah, now I was but, like, yeah, I know. Hey. But but if you're overstimulated and you're a person that deals with anxiety and anxiety going into a match, you probably don't need stimulation. You probably need to chill out. You need probably need to breathe because when you get your hands on someone, your mind's probably racing too much. You need to relax so that you can actually use it. Like judo is a lot more than a physical action. Mm right? It's yeah. a, it's a chess game. And if you're, if your brain's not working properly, you're not playing chess. You're just an athletic person moving around the mats. Oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. So when you, um, when you yeah, coach, exactly. I mean, once, um, yeah. no, go ahead. Sorry. I, we had a little, uh, internet glitch there for a sec, I think. No, that's right. You go and I'll, uh, whatever. Okay. Yeah. So, so I was going to say in terms of that, um, I always find it interesting what you, the process is, outside of and you talked about this a little bit before in terms of gripping outside of just teaching the actual technique what your and you don't have to give me any secret sauce recipes but what kind of um processes do you have to help produce more than just someone that understands how a technique works but um a systematic approach or or do you have that or or processes so that they can perform more than just entering a technique yeah so you know um Terra. You know that jiu-jitsu guy? Yeah. He's got um, a, a thing on his wall that says technique conquers all. And you're like, well, technique does conquer all, but it also doesn't conquer all because strategy right. and tactics actually feed into technique. And right. so often I'll teach a move, like, for example, say we're doing Koichi Makakomi. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I'll teach, hey, guys, here's how you do Koichi Makakomi, but here's how it works in Randuri. I do a COE. I might get a score. I might get a score. He might get out of it. Mm -hmm. But either way, when we re-grip up, my opponent's going to be thinking he does a COE. And I'm going to play on that. I'm going to fake the COE when he sits back on it. I do coach him back and coming. So I'm giving them the mindset and the strategy behind the technical application. Right. If we only do technique, then it's like technique doesn't work. It's technique and strategy that come together. Mm -hmm. and mindset and scenario mm -hmm. that then makes a score actually work or a technique actually work. So that's what I try to get people like, what is your, and I know Roddy Ferguson once said, you got to be a master salesman. Like you've got to sell a technique to your opponent. So mm -hmm. you think they think something and then you do something else. And so right. I really try to helpfully teach. I'm thinking this, they're thinking that, and that's why I'm going to do this. And this is why it's going to work. But right. if I'm thinking this and they're thinking that this is not going to work. And so trying to get that it's actually not about sometimes it's not about what i want it's about what you're thinking and what you're giving me mm -hmm. will then dictate what i want right so right does that make sense we're trying to yep. teach scenario, scenario so for example with me and you are right on right mm -hmm. um just a standard right-handed grip you've got my right sleeve i've got your right sleeve mm -hmm. you try to do ogoshi but i've got your right sleeve yep. so you can't get your arm around my waist 
And so we teach beginners Ogoshi, but then they try to do it in Randori. And like, I can't get my arm around because he's got yep. the sleeve grip and he can't get. So I go, well, okay, well, in Randori, I break the sleeve. Right. I fake it, top grip, they block it. And then, I, and so we're teaching them scenario plus technique, not just technique on its own. So that's, I think, what I try to do, which it's that deeper level of understanding that right. hopefully gets people thinking, like you said, thinking about judo right. rather than just doing judo. Yeah. And so my next question, I guess, would be is, when do you introduce that? Because I'm that, that I'm a huge advocate of that same thing. The, the reference that I like to use is we have two people. They have a grip, small children. So everyone's seen this a million times. You teach a small kid Osoto. Two kids are doing yeah. judo. One kid wants to do Osoto. One pushes. The one who tries the Osoto gets slammed. Doesn't want to do Osoto yeah. anymore. Problem yeah. is not his Osoto, right? The problem is the other guy's arms are in the way or other yeah, girls. Exactly. And yeah. so when do you start introducing the aspects to make that throw more available do you do that when you are teaching the throw or do you do that soon after they've mastered a technique to some degree when do you introduce that stage yeah i think it's one of the hardest parts i try to avoid teaching grip fighting to beginners to intermediates but mm -hmm. you also know that the longevity of their judo career is also based on the grip fighting mm -hmm. so it's like firstly you'll find some people will ask the questions Okay, cool. How's this work in Mandori though? So right. the student's asking the question. So then uh, you then answer the question. Okay, well, I'd actually do this. And so right. I think it, became, it becomes, it depends what the class looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it depends on what the questions they're asking. And it just depends on who they are. So right. um, it's kind of, I don't really have a system of when. Right. But for example, for the kids, I will teach Osoto. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I'll teach you, here's how you do Osoto. Go and do it. Okay, now we're going to do Randori. One kid's going to have a nice collarbone grip. Your, your uki is going to have a grip down somewhere down near the belly button. Right. Go and do Osuligari. Who wins and why? And then the kid with the top grip is obviously going to win because they've got more posture right. control, good, better Kazushi. And then hopefully the kids will be like, ah, oh, so you only do Osoto when the sleeves down here, a little, little pelvis right. down here. That's right. So um, that's kind of so sort of leading them on their own journey to find the answer and then come back to you with that answer rather than you necessarily providing that answer. And that doesn't yeah. mean they may start to make the gripping adjustments or that's the hope without you teaching ways that can be defensive of ripping grips off and things like that. Like just knowing, knowing more about when the right time to do something is rather than necessarily grip fighting to get to the right time. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So it also depends on who's in the class and that sort of stuff and go from right. there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and as like uh, private clubs and or any scenario, you know, you teach judo. If you, if you don't have a massive program where you have every single age and, and rank separated, you're always going to have this mixed group that you're teaching this mixed group of mixed skills. So that yeah. like, obviously, that's always the challenge. Um, I guess the next is in terms of Nawaza, um, I personally love to teach a lot of Nawaza early on. And even the older people are, the slower I am to transition to the Randori. Personally, Tachiwaza Randori. Um, falling can be scary. I like to take time. And if someone's never been thrown before and they're 35 and 6'2", it's really yeah. scary. Um, yeah. So I was curious what, what you're as a, I'm not sure, are you a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well? Or black, black. black. Oh, black. Uh, sorry. So uh, as a double-barreled black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo, your for judo specifically, how much Nawaza you're putting in, how much that is more early on potentially, or? Yeah, uh, we, 
for the beginners, I actually just slide them straight into whatever class we're doing. So if we're doing Uchimata that, that day and there's a brand newbie, right. they do Uchimata that day. Right. But we just look up, we just look after them. So right. hey guys, this is Josh. It's his first class. Don't throw him. Okay, cool. No worries. So Josh is in there. He's doing he's doing Uchimata. Right. And he's practicing it and he's having fun and he's making friends with all the class, but he's not getting thrown. So I right. kind of that so I won't I won't go, oh, he's a beginner, so we're gonna do Nerwaza. But mm-hmm. uh, we try to do Nerwaza every class and they'll just be become a part of it. But mm-hmm. I'm really big on um hey guys, so for example, last night I taught a class and I said, all right, and I had like Brazilian Jitsu blue belt, but judo white belt. I had um, black belts and brown belts, Japanese Jitsu. So a whole mix of different arts and knowledge. So okay, everyone, we're going to do we're going to warm up with uh, we're going to do a warm up, and then after that, the Nerwaza component, we're going to do Jujigatami. So you got either you can do this Jujigatami if you've never done it before. You can do this one. Um, if you do a bit more Jujitsu, you're going to do a like a cutting armbar from guard, mm-hmm. and then when the arm comes over, you're going to do a belly down armbar and reroll. Um, you can do that, or you can do whatever armbar you want. So I kind of give people three options, right? And then they can choose which one they want to do. Um, and so that's that's what I how I kind of run classes. I kind of differentiate. Hey guys, we're doing Uchimata tonight. Beginners, you're going to do this Uchimata. Intermediates, you're going to do this one. Be- advanced, you're going to do whatever you like, as long as it's finishing with or starting with Uchimata. So we're all doing the same technique at different levels. Right. In terms of your skill set as a black belt in both, more than a black belt, you're a fourth degree black belt in judo, but um, and an Olympian in in judo as well. But in terms of teaching, is your do you have? Are you teaching the same people both? Are you teaching one class where are they learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu and judo from you? Is that a separate program? If they are separate programs, do they blend? Um, how does that work? Yeah, so I I essentially we, at my club we have kids class teenage class, adult judo, and our adult judo class. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's only me running it, then I'll differentiate, like I said before. Or if I'll have a fundamental, I'll go, hey, everyone, Murray's down here running uh, fundamentals where he's going to be focusing on Osoto and advanced will be down this end doing combinations into and out of Osoto. So that's, and then that's our judo program. And then jiu-jitsu is after judo and I'll do the same thing. We're doing arm bars today. Murray's down there doing arm bars from guard. I'm doing arm bars from back. Or you can come down this end and open mat and do whatever you like. And so that's right. how I can do it. So judo and jiu-jitsu would be completely separate. Okay. Um, yeah. If we are doing nerwaza, um, sometimes I'll say, hey, guys, a judo guy will react like this and a jiu-jitsu guy will react like this, mainly based on the skill, the sport rules. You know. Right. So, for example, um, I'm running a seminar in maybe three weeks and the guy said, "Can you? I've got heaps of judo guys, heaps of jiu-jitsu guys. Can you run nerwaza transitions? And I'm like, oh, it was a transitions with half judo, half jiu-jitsu. You almost can't do it because it's completely different sports. The jiu-jitsu right. guys can land on his back and pull guard. Right. The judo guys in the belly out and land on his tail. So the, the, there's no, the transitions are going to be two separate classes. Right. That's what really separates the two sports, really, is the transition. Even, even look at half guard, like a judo guy is just going to hug your leg mm-hmm. as tight as they can and not let it go. Where a jiu-jitsu guy, they're going to get underhook and try, you know, all these different. So it's like often it depends on the sport. So I usually say a jiu-jitsu reaction will be this, a judo reaction will be this. Right. A judo guy in turtle is just going to mainly just turtle up or belly out on their stomach and just tie it up where a jiu-jitsu guy is going to get up, turn and face and whatever. So you right. have to be ready for both reactions, but in that's when the sports really separate. Right. So I guess um, 
the one thing that's interesting, I don't want to get into the weeds about rule changes in judo, but one thing that I do find fascinating is the evolution of judo and how it changes. Rule changing, I guess, to a degree plays a factor. Um, you know, removing the ability to grab legs changed the way people did katagruma. It didn't remove katagruma at all. Um, so I don't know how much you follow um, the international. I, I would I would expect pretty significant amount, especially with your connection and your, and your background competitively. But do you follow the current IGF tour quite a bit or? Not as much as I used to. I think right. mainly because I'm kind of, I don't know as many, you know, back in the day, we we're like, I used to fight that guy, I used to fight that guy. Now I didn't, right. you know, I had that less connection, you know, to see right. uh, some of them still compete, but um, I don't follow it as much as I should, but also now I've got three kids. I homeschooled them. So it's like, I just oh. have less time plus the club. So you're it's, a brave um, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um so I don't follow it as much as I, I used to. Right. But um but yeah, still pretty Yeah, because the, the reason that I ask is I, I find it so fascinating to see the evolution of judo and how we're seeing more and more in a sense at times of regional differences in how judo's performed. Um you know, uh, the British have always been well known going back to Neil Adams and maybe before, but as this Nawaza strong uh, country that was like one of the big things we used to call one rolling choke in Canada the British rule as an example or you look at the stylistic qualities of the Mongolian team how that stands out so much still or the Georgian judo program or the Koreans or the Japanese so um, yeah so I just sort of if there's anything that stands out to you that you've seen, I guess, even in, even since you've been producing these videos and producing this content, things that you've noticed change or adapt or the utilization of different techniques so much more now or, or recently than in the past. I think the biggest evolution has been that kind of that elbow up uchimata, the pushing the head down, you know, right. like really go for a big kosoto, they step back out with their head down. And rather than trying to get underneath in that classical style, they're really just pushing the head down and just throwing the leg up which right. I actually really like. I think it's an easier way to perform it and to teach it. Um, right. Just to see that sort of wind. Um, yeah, it's just been really cool. Yeah. Um, one, that, one that stands out to me that you might be were of a similar age um, is if you, were, you would have known, but back, I used to be a huge fan of Uchimata Tsukashi. And the thing that I found interesting is starting around 2001, there was a 66 kilogram Iranian world champion, Irash Mirzmeli. And in the 2001 world final, he did an Uchimata Gaishi. People call it the stretchy or whatever. Yeah. But this massive one in the finals that I remember watching a hundred times and not understanding what happened. He gets launched in the air and then somehow the guy rotates under him and he throws him. And to see Uchimata Tsukashi almost not be performed anymore. And this Uchimata Gaishi is how you counter Uchimata now is one that I that really stands out to me because I learned Uchimata Tsukashi in the 80s. And that's what everyone did. And then one day, everyone's doing the other and Tsuchimata Tsukashi is this beautiful throw that's sort of gone at the moment. Yeah. And I think now they don't even score it as a technique anymore. Like IJF level. If you've seen, you've done it, you probably haven't done any of the recent because it's right. not a throw. It's not a, right. it's not a, right. Like what throw is it? It's called, right. it's kind of called nothing. You have to, you know, the one where you just kind of just push them over. They don't, right. 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 Do right. you remember? I remember you're right through the, I was mainly through the nineties and my coaches would go to Japan, but mainly Korea. And they come back and be like, check out this throw called Soto Surukamagoshi, like, right. you know, with the two sleeves. Right. Um, and, and then they, or they'd come back and go, check out this Katagruma from, remember, Vazakashvili, the 66th Georgian. Right. Katagruma, drop Katagruma, Ukiwaza. 
and then they'd come. Here's the Jun Uchimata, you know. Oh my god! Yeah. And, and then it became the Koga stuff. Right. But, but now there's the Ono Uchimata, you know. Right. Um, but really, that's kind of it. There's not not as much kind of, I guess, humongous heroes like some of those guys that really changed the landscape. Yeah. Um, yeah. The ones know. that stand out to me is I was again I was speaking to a media about this. There's the eras of I like to call them Jadoka's favorite Jadoka. So you had Yamashita, obviously, uh, and then you had Koga. Everyone loved Koga. And the one, the one that I missed when I was naming them off was Shohei. Or as, uh, sorry, not Shohei. Oh man, now I can't think of his name. Kosei Inoue. Uh, Kosei Inoue yeah. is one that I sort of skip past. I mean, Kosei Inoue had as hot a streak as you can have in just a world class throw. And then you had Iliadis following him, who was just so magnificent. And then yeah, I'd say after that you had a sort of transitionary gap to Shohei, who's almost, um, Shohei Ono's almost unbeatable, shockingly lost to a German in the team competition of the Olympics, which was yeah. unexpected. But outside of that, he just doesn't seem to lose. He's so dominant with two throws, really. This, what we used to call, or uh, this double collar, people call the Korean grip, the one high collar and the second collar, um, this Osoto, and then this incredible Uchimata. And it's so like, if you're a righty, you're getting thrown Osoto. If you're lefty, you're getting thrown Uchimata. Like that's yeah. just, yeah. yeah. And the, and the, and the one too, that stands out is Sode. Same thing is I think post post um, Koga, Koga did some Sodes with his Seos. And then you've just seen that throw explode with Abe Hafumi and, um, um, and the world champion, 81 kilograms from Israel, Sagi Muki. You have these guys that utilize it. And obviously uh, Hafume's sister, that's right. But, you know, the Israeli team is coached by Oren Spadja, who was a Sode specialist. Right. Um, and he came second to Koga. And right. they do nearly right the way through from 66 to 81. 60 to 81, they all do Sode and, and Soto, Osoto, Sode into Osoto. Like, it's just right. so powerful. Right. Yeah. When you go to that Osoto first and they react exactly what we were talking about before in terms of how you understand the transitioning of those techniques, punching that sleeve across and going for that Osoto, they step off of it. Now there's this yeah. huge soda just waiting for you to throw them with. That's right. And they're doing standing ones where the Cubans, they did that drop soda for like, they've been doing that forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. That was such and a, str such a strong program, that Cuban program in the nineties. Yeah. And then that kind of just, fizzled. it's funny how that is fizzled. Like it's just yeah. leadership or finances or culture. Right. Um, Maybe yeah, money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, money's a big one. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. Aaron Sibia was a spectacular soda. Oh, that's well, one of my all time favorites watching that guy throw like his soda was so special to see. Oh man. Yeah. He's, he's like, he's like underrated sick player to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. yeah the, awesome. the Israeli program is one that stands out to me too. It's a popularity with which judo has ever since, um, the world champion, um, ZV? No. Um, oh, woman, Art Yarden Jerby. Yeah. 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 yeah Yarden, she won her world champions title. And then all of a sudden, judo just seemed to explode in popularity. They're housing Grand Prix and they're sellouts and they hosted the Europeans and everyone's on their feet. And the team has become yeah. so strong. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me makes me want to go there and see what other things they're doing to create that. Like what's the culture that's getting created there to make judo so 
I'd love to replicate that in Canada and Australia and these places. Be, oh, I'd love, yeah. Imagine having like unlimited funding. I'd spend a week at, with Jimmy Pedro, right. a week with like Jason Morris. Right. You know, I'd go right. to, yeah, you know, Sasha Mamedovich and the kind of Gills Club. I've been there when I, I went there when I was 17. Right. For a week. Right. Uh, and then imagine going to like Smad, or with the Smadger in Israel. Right. Oh, just be awesome. Just yeah, to it's, even it's, go to like Brazil and just just to be it's mainly and I'd also spend a week with Danaher just just because of the culture like how right. are you developing how are you how are you developing this because it's not just Randori's right. it's something else it's something else that you're developing technical mm-hmm. how much technical to Randori you're doing mm-hmm. you know um, so that's the thing we talked about prior about this kind of Japanese system of like. We're just going to do a million rounds of randori. And people think that's what the Japanese do. But when you go there, when you rock up to training at four o'clock, they're in the geese already. And they've been there for an hour. They're doing technique for an hour. Just mm. the funsies. Then right. you do two or three hours of randori. And when you go home, they're still there chatting after class, mucking around. And you kind of go, now they did two or three hours of randori. But they've also, they were here before we were here doing technique. Right. Like they don't just right. do randori. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's a little more to it. Yeah, the the countries that have I, I like to look at countries as a Canadian. We think of ourselves as small. We're not that small, really. When you when you compare our population to European population population bases, you know we're approaching forty million, I think, in Canada now. So pretty big population, although it's spread over a gigantic area. Um, but I love to look at countries that have a small population base, and then what makes that special? Yeah, like mm-hmm. if I had that endless money where I could go, my tour for sure would go. Israel, and it would go to Georgia, and it would go to Mongolia. And those three mm-hmm. countries combined for a population of about 20 million people combined between the three, and three of the top seven countries in the world in terms of judo performance. There's something to that, that there's something different being done. Yeah. And it's a mindset thing. Like, you know, there's a book, uh, it's called The Outliers. And he talks yeah. about that. There's Malcolm a, Gladwell. There's a tennis- yeah, there's a, a tennis club in Russia and, you know, there's 30 members, but they've got, you know, the top 10 players in the world sort of thing. Right. And it's like, well, what are they teaching? It can't just be technique. It's mindset of like, you you will be the best, you know? Right, um, right. Yeah, like it's that culture behind it rather than just the sheer hard work, you know? It's more than that. Right, yeah, and that reminds me too, we were talking a little bit earlier is um, the 2000 Olympics that were in Sydney, the Australian team put up absolutely incredible results in a number of sports. And I read a book, I believe it's called the sports gene. If you haven't read the sports gene, it's fantastic. It talks about physiology and how certain things. So for instance, your ability to be a good high jumper is based primarily, the height of your jump is based primarily on your Achilles tendon. There's two options. You can have a really big Achilles tendon, a really long one. When you look at a guy like Kevin Durant in the NBA, his Achilles tendon seems endless. And then the other one is if your Achilles tendon is incredibly firm. So what you have is you have a very, very strong spring or a very, very big spring. And that dictates, obviously, there can be some fluctuation based on your strength development. But for the most part, that spring is going to decide how high you can jump. So if you don't have a super firm or a really big Achilles tendon, it doesn't really matter. And they, um, this writer spoke about the Australian programs taking athletes from some programs, doing physio- physical tests on them, 
and taking national athletes and moving them to different sports based on where their body could compete. And I found that really interesting um, that that the Australians did that in the 90s going into those 2000 Olympics. And you look at the success of the 2000 Olympics for the Australian team for a country of that population base and so isolated, unbelievable results. Um, so yeah, it's more than just, there's more to it. It's not just your ability to perform a technique. Yeah, that's right. We had, um, we had the, uh, a whole heap of Japanese judo players come to Australia, to the uh, Australian Institute of Sport and Inouye came as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, a, a few, maybe two or three national team members, plus a whole heap of junior national team members, they mm -hmm. came and trained with the Australian team. But we tested the Australians, the sports scientists tested the Australians with like deadlift, bench press, beep tests, like heaps of stuff. Mm -hmm. Then they tested the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And at the end of all the results, they had them doing all sorts of different stuff. But what they found was the main difference, the Australians were just as strong as the Japanese, except for the Japanese could develop a huge amount of force from a still, from a stopped position. Mm -hmm. So they get, you you know, like when you do a bench press, if you lower it and push it. So if I go, I do that stretch reflex, down, up, I can lift 100. But if mm -hmm. I go down, pause, up, mm -hmm. I can only lift. They found that the Japanese could lift almost double what all the Aussies could do. Wow. They could generate, think about judo, where you're both stuck in a right-on-right -right situation. Right. They could generate a huge amount of force from that position, boom, where the Aussies couldn't. Right. Think about that in terms of creating space. And, the, and they did it with like, they made him deadlift a bar that's like, you know, a thousand kilos. You couldn't move it. Mm -hmm. Rest for 10 seconds and do it. They had all these different, and they just said, we don't know what the Japanese are doing, but what mm -hmm. we do know, and there's a massive amount of uh, power generation um, right. from a stopped position. It's just really right. interesting. Yeah. yeah, the other one that's interesting too that you mentioned earlier is when we were talking about, um, what, what was the quote? Judo, uh, technique is... Technique conquers all. Technique conquers all. And I agree that it's important to be obsessive about technique and we should never do anything at the cost of technique. I yeah. agree with that 100%. But sometimes what's a flippant thing that's often said is don't use strength, don't worry about muscle, do technique. And what I like to tell people is, is that our skeleton is a puppet to our musculature right? So our skeleton only does what our muscles allow it to do. So the stronger we are and the more efficient that our muscles move, the better we operate. And everything that we do in judo technically is done by, by our body in that, in that physical sense. So if we're stronger, so, so Josh, can, I, can I be back in like two minutes? Sure, sure, sure. Just had to say there's a crazy guy judo downstairs. I'll just be back in a okay, second. Okay, sure. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Matsudo Canada. It's the number one supplier of martial arts gear in Canada, and they produce not only beautiful uniforms, but also amazing apparel and world-class IJF certified mat services. Known for their customization and embroidery options, there is no one else you should look to for whatever needs you may have. Please use promo code AFIGHTINGCHANCE at checkout to receive a discount. Sorry, Josh. Yeah, no problem. Well, that was hectic. What happened? So I rent my dojos inside a church, and so we rent kind of the auditorium space. Right. Outside the church is a massive playground. So the kids play on the playground. And a dude was walking past the church. He had a bow and arrow. And my son Rocky goes, that guy's got a bow and arrow. And then the guy went off at Rocky. Rocky's only seven. Oh Started God. yelling at him, saying, I'm going to shoot you with the bow and arrow. 
arrows and everything. So, oh my God, in the middle of the day on a Saturday, that's Australia, I guess. So yeah, as, as you had said before, uh, in terms of the importance of technique, I, I totally agree how important technique is, but our body is moved and operated by our muscles. So it's a really great concept to say muscles are, you know, don't use your muscles. Don't do that. Don't use strength, just use technique. But us performing the technique is a requirement that our body does it. So it's really important for sure that you focus on technique and not to do things at the cost of technique. But at the same time, the efficiency with which you perform technique is based on the efficiency that your body moves and operates. And so if your goal is to become a high performance athlete, don't tell yourself, I need to just be technically sound at judo. If you want to be the best in the world, you have to be a spectacular athlete, period. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. That's, that's just an expectation. You have to do that. You have to be you have to have all the uh, things of understanding judo and being technically sound at judo and having the strategy. But if you're not a great athlete, it doesn't matter how beautiful your throw is. You won't be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like if you have zero ankle and knee stability, good luck doing Uchimata. Right. Like if you can't stand on one leg and have good stability, right. Well, your Uchimata is going to, you're just going to fall over on your face all the time. Or if you've got no core strength and someone just hips in a little bit, you're just right. going to fall over. Right. So it's, it's so important. And it's actually easy to get a strong body and athletic. It's way harder to build technique. I, you know? That's for sure. And you know, the, the clubs or the, the coaches might say, oh, I just got to be strong. And you can see it in their athletes. The athletes are super strong, super stiff, no loose. Mm -hmm. They can see their throws coming a mile off and you go, because they're like, their surete is like, and they just can't move. And you go, Mate, right. Right. You guys need to spend less time in the gym and more time at judo. Right. And the club down the road, they need to spend more time in the gym and less at judo. You know what I mean? Like it's right. sort of that balance, but you can yeah, right. be strong. Yeah. And it's a, it's a funny thing too, um, because most of the world looks at the Japanese program rightfully so because of how spectacular they are for sure. But what's sometimes lost is again, there's misconceptions of how people train. So when we think of the Japanese, oh, they just do judo and they just do a couple hours of judo a day. And as you said, well, when I was there, they were on the mats before we left. We got there and they were on the mats after we left. And it also takes into account, like, do you know what they're doing for weights? Do you know if they're doing weights? And one that's always interesting to me is we had an Olympian in 1992 named Roman Hatashita, who I know quite well. Um, so Roman, I remember talking to him once. So he fought 71 kilograms, now 73 kilograms. And in that division was Koga. So he goes, I'm getting ready for weigh-ins. And there's all these Europeans. And he said, they're shredded and ripped and abs and whatever, just jacked. And he's like, and then I looked at Koga, who almost looked a little chubby in the belly. He's like, and then I looked at his legs and each one looked like the size of my waist. Mm -hmm. And he's like, that's where the power comes from. He was not weak. He was incredibly powerful. And the same thing I've seen on his Instagram is Shohei when he's running the stairs and you look at the picture of Shohei's legs and you're like, wow. he looks like a speed skater. His legs are enormous. There's so much power generated there. Don't think that the Japanese aren't weight training. Don't think it's only judo. These are strong, phenomenal athletes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the stronger your base is, I mean, I hate fighting people with those short, big legs. I hate fighting those players. I'd right. rather fight a tall, skinny guy any day of the week. <laughs> right. You know, those short. Also, I've had a knee Rico, so I don't like kind of hooking in for the Ouchi, you know, the Tanya Toshi when you're hooked in. Right, and right. And so if they're short with those big legs, I'm like, I'm not throwing my leg in there. Right, just, yeah, yeah. You can have it. 
I'm yeah, out. You, you, you can throw me. Tanya Josh, go for it. Just don't break my leg in half. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that, that strong base, it's true. Like that's where so much balance comes from. So again, in ice hockey or hockey, uh, if you, if you've ever seen an NHL player in person or, or met them, they're not big hulking guys. You think of Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid or Wayne Gretzky, or uh, most of them. I mean, some of them are big men. Milan Lucic is huge, but when you, when you see a lot of these guys, what is always the same is they're pushing with their legs all day and that's their balance when people are body checking you in the sport, you look at the lower half of these men and they're huge thick because they got to stay balanced on ice when people are hitting them. And that balance doesn't come from biceps, doesn't come from pecs. It comes from huge legs. And judo is the art of breaking and keeping your own balance really. Um, so having this super strong base is, is what's going to give you lifting power. It's going to keep you balanced when people attack you. Yeah. And, and, and it's true too. the idea of, um, of getting strong. And that's the other part that I think can provide some hope for other people in terms of what they want to do. Well, I'm not strong. I'm not naturally strong. I'm not physically a dominant force. Getting strong. Isn't such a scary process, you know, look up a linear progression model, look up a starting strength model, something like that. You don't have to be the strongest guy in judo, especially if you're technically sound, but you do have to be strong you can put on a lot of strength, not muscle mass and weight. Okay. That's yeah. steroids, but you can't do that quickly, but you can get significantly stronger in a few months. You can be measurably stronger, just yeah. following some kind of basic solid strength training model. Yeah. yeah um, in terms of um, Australia is such an isolated part of the world outside of your very close neighbors. Um, how do you, how, how much access did you have as an athlete to get to other parts of the world to do your training and get to competitions? Like I can only imagine if you were to do a European tour, how much jet lag would affect you? Oh yeah. Jet lag. Yeah. I remember like going, going to places and people would be like, you're from Australia. That's so far away. Like when I was in like South America or all they're like, mm -hmm how long did it take to get here you're like like two days right you know? it was cool when we had um we had a world cup in samoa and we had like um i think nick tritton sasha mamedovic has been right. there right. kind of a canadian team that you did back a while ago now right um so this has been um, like late 2000 early 2010 range maybe something yeah, like that 2008 yeah. 2010 yeah and they were like, oh, it's so far away. I'm like, finally, you know what it feels like. Right. Like, you know, uh, like there's some Brazilian, like Canto was there. And it was like, this just took me like three days to get here. Right. I'm like, hey, now you know what it feels like to be just jet lagged and tired. And right. It's just all part of it. Like that you be, you want to be there. You want to be at the tournament. So, you know, you're going to be, um, um, you know, that you're going to be tired. You just kind of just, you just kind of just do it. Right. Like I've always it's easy to make yourself a victim in terms of the challenges that we face. Canadians feel that way too. Oh, look how big the country is. Look how far we have to travel to get to these events. Look how far when we go to Europe, we're at such a disadvantage against the Europeans. Okay. Well, that's our plate. You know, that's the situation we get to live in a beautiful country. It's, it's really nice. Um, like we have lots of benefits too. So there is challenges, but, uh, and to that point is like, you know, I haven't thought about it that, that much before, but as challenging as it may be, I believe, um, from being from that era of Nick Tritton and Sasha McMenovich and those guys being close contemporaries and friends of mine that I still keep, uh, stay in close contact with for people that aren't aware, Sasha McMenovich was the, the coach leading to the Tokyo Olympic games where Canada had four people fight for a medal, worked very closely with Katrin Boschman-Pinard who took a bronze medal in those games. Um, so 
very successful last number of years for him coaching um, is what I believe they started doing more so then, or that was my memory is instead of flying to Europe for an event or two, they were going for sometimes four and five weeks, the Canadian team. So that yes, maybe the first event wasn't perfect, but they would stay a little bit longer, get a training camp and get their body acclimatized. And then by the second and third event, they'd be in a much better place to perform. So um, I'm not sure if that's what you got to do, or if you're seeing more of that now, or if you'd know. Yeah, definitely seeing more of it now. We didn't really have that. Um, yeah, we would often just fly in, do a tournament, do the training camp, do the next tournament, fly home, essentially. Right. Right. I, I think the longest I spent overseas was like, oh, actually, yeah, I did two months in Japan, but I was just training, not like tournaments. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I think now they're spending longer and longer blocks uh, in Europe mm -hmm. and overseas. And what the Australians are doing now is they're kind of choosing not those A-level, Premier-level tournaments, but we're choosing kind of the smaller tournaments because there's no point going to Tokyo Grand Slam and looting first round. Now, it is good to fight Tokyo Grand Slam, mm -hmm. but if you can go to a local tournament in Germany and have eight fights, well, that's right. going to be way more beneficial long-term for your athlete development than right. doing one fight at a Tokyo Grand Slam. So uh, I know the Aussies have looked at um, some of those lower level tournaments and entered them and had come away with four or five fights, which is kind of way better. Right. Um, yeah. The, the other thing that uh, maybe vastly sometimes underrated is if you're only going to the major ones, which are no matter who you are, we've seen the best athletes lose. Um, if those are the only ones you're going to, and you're going under the circumstances with which Canadians or more so Australians are, you're putting yourself in a position to fail in the hardest tournaments. It's very hard to become a confident athlete. And yeah. so the success that success begets success. So going to events where you can succeed, following that with tougher events after you've had an amount of success, knowing it's possible, maybe beating a guy or two that's really good or, or a woman or two on the women's side that's really good, rather than knowing you have to beat five of them in one event, getting some of those wins beforehand, I think can, can lead to a lot more, I'm capable of doing this. I've done it a little, but if you're yeah. just going to Tournoi de Paris or Paris Grand Slam, or you're just going to the Tokyo Grand Slam, like, like you know, or just the world's like, these are That's such right. massive. Yeah. I remember once I did, um, uh, we did, I called the Pan American trip and I did, uh, Miami world cup. I had four mm -hmm. fights. I lost two, lost two. Then I did us open maybe I think two days later and I had maybe four matches then. Right. Then we went to Pan America. Uh, we went to Venezuela, lost first round. But then we went to El Salvador, but I, it was cool because I think I won three matches and then I lost two, so I had five fights or maybe it was four fights. But either way, what it was cool was I'm like, oh, I'm in the finals block. You know how the mat area, the warm up area at the, at the start of the day, it's stacked. There's no space. Right, right. First round, half are gone. Second round, another half are gone. Right. And it was cool to be like, oh, wow, I'm still one of the guys going. Right. I'm still in this. And that's a world champion and he's in the stands. And, and that guy's a Grand Prix medalist and he's in the stands. He's finished for the day, but I'm still going. Right. Um, that was just really cool. But I only got snapshots of that throughout my career. And the best in the world get that at every tournament. Right. Um, and so that was kind of because I was, you know, there's Olympians and then there's Olympians, you know, like right. there's Olympians and then and there's just, there's black belts and there's black belts, you know, like it's, right. it's layers and levels. But it was cool for me to be like, this is what all those top guys go every tournament. They, right. they have this thing where there's more space in warm-up area now because right. I'm still going and they're not. So that right. was kind of cool for me. But that was 2011. And then I retired from competition in 2012. So right. I've been kind of doing that sort of stuff. But 
Right. Yeah. The, yeah. The other thing about it too, is there's like, you get a taste of that, even though it's at a very small level, but you get a taste when you, when you compete in finals at some events of, of the seduction of knowing that people are now watching you because there's only a couple matches and most mm -hmm. people are in the stands. So knowing that and feeling like you're performing to some degree, which yeah. is uh, a kind of a seductive thing, I think, to a sense, and you get a taste of. Now, this is very minor. We're talking about judo, but you know, you think of like professional athletes or boxers with that big fight or a UFC fight or an NBA player, and it's uh, it's not the same, but you sort of get a hint of it. You are now on a stage when you get to be in an event like that where the thing is shut down and you're in the final block and it's you, you know, and it's one thing that I love now is watching the IGF tour and that it's in high definition and that it's commentated and they black out the rest of the area and it's one mat and they have the super slow motion and it, it makes the judo event feel like a real event is one thing that I love because I love judo and the idea of it being more popular, that it's more viewer friendly. That's got to feel great as an athlete too, to know like, that's how I'm going to look if I made the final Arthur Majali Don fighting in those positions from Canada, things like that. Super awesome to see, you know, yeah. um, in the, as you were, yeah, it's really good. IGF have done a really good job. With yeah. Stuff. Yeah. The, the, the world championships, when they do those super slow motion shots in the finals and stuff, those are just sick. And 361 the camera. There's like 300. That's amazing. So sick. Amazing. Yeah. It's like that. I, I, I absolutely love that stuff just because it's like, I just think I go, oh, judo looks like the NBA, you know, judo looks like the NHL. Like you see it, the production quality is so good. And then you hear Neil and you're like, that's judo, the voice of judo. Um, yeah, that's yeah. super exciting for me as a fan. So um, the, the one other area that I was interested in as a, as as we said before, you're a person that started producing this video content at a time when people weren't really producing video content and it wasn't really there. Um, what was the influences on judo in Australia? We got booted for a second there. I'm back. Perfect. Perfect. Um, so yeah, I was going to ask, um, here one second. So, so at the start, we talked about how you were one of the first people to produce a lot of video content um, for judo and that not a lot of people were doing it. And, and then not only did you produce it, you produced it in a, a really nice way that was really presentable and then got a lot of traction. Like you have videos with, I don't know, 600,000 views, maybe more. That's, that's one that I just recently saw was 600,000. So, you know, a lot of people were actually taking, were taking your content in. So not only did you do it, but you did it to the point where people notice and people all over the world see your, which is a pretty awesome thing. And it's exciting for me that to see a judo person get people following them all over the world is really exciting, but because you were one of the first people to do it, and knowing how far away you are from the rest of the world, we often had people come to Canada from other places and that would influence the judo scene in Canada. Um, famously, uh, Sensei Nakamura is uh, Nicola Gill's coach. He came from Japan, I believe, in the early 70s and started running what became our national program. So what were the influences to get judo into Australia? And was that a regular occurrence? Did you have often visitation? Did, did the how did you guys get more influence to get before you could just see it, you know, before it was available like it is now? Yeah. I, 
you know how we're talking, I think at the start of this, how you're like, oh, there, there's this, this guy's an Olympic medalist and this guy's an Olympian and this guy's a Like Australia's so close to Japan and we have no Japanese coaches in Australia. We've got one down in Melbourne, a Japanese coach from that I can think of, but we, we seem to not have these high level, like you said, oh, they've got this guy from maybe Cameroon or mm-hmm. Australia just seems empty of level foreign players mm-hmm. don't seem to come to Australia. I just think it's just, I don't know why. But yeah. um, so I think one of the major influences um, uh, from judo was our old head coach, pretty much from Atlanta, I think, right the way through to Beijing, was a guy called Peter Herman. Um, he was one of the major influences in the, our high performance program. He was a German, came second in the world back in the 60s moved to France, and I think he actually put the French Federation on the map. So he took the French Jew from here to the top, and then he moved to Australia and then took on our high-performance program. So Peter Herman was probably the main influence. Um, right. Another guy, maybe Arthur Morset as well. But So for us, I think um, for me growing up, the most of the judo we got was just from my coaches going to Korea and and Japan to kind of just teach judo and that sort of stuff. Is that your question? Or are you talking about yep. even earlier, like a hundred years ago, how did judo kind no, of... No, no, no. I'm talking about like in your, in your era, lifetime growing up in judo, where were you getting outside influence to develop technique in judo to become the oh. judoka you are? You yeah. didn't have so think, you on YouTube. Yeah, exactly right. Um, well, the fighting films DVDs, right? So do you remember when the, right. um, I think, modern competition judo was Karen Briggs, Neil Adams, pretty much all the fighting films content. I think everyone right. around the world through that time was, was that content. Um, the highlights uh, of the world championships that would come out after 101 uh, upon. Yeah. And back then they were really good. They showed all the rapid charge matches as well. Where right. now they showed not as much, but I now they don't really make those kind of DVDs anymore. But um, yeah, so all those fighting films content is where we learned stuff. And right. then just, and just my coaches going overseas, but we didn't really have many visiting people from other countries coming here and that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Like um, I was really fortunate in 1993, Hamilton, Ontario held the world championships. And so in 1993, I got to watch Nicola Gill of Canada take a silver medal at Worlds after he had medaled at the Olympics. He was like 21 at the time. His Nicola Gill, if people that if, if people are watching this that aren't Canadian or don't know that much about him, he medaled in the junior world, I believe, in 1991, the Olympics in 92 and the world in 93 and then again in 95. Um, just an absolute monster. Um, so he, came, we know- he came second in Sydney, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the guy that beat him in the 92 Olympics in the semifinal was the first ever and only second to this point to have Olympic titles in two different weight classes. Legion won the 88 Olympics in 78 and the 92 Olympics in 86. That's who beat him in the semifinal. The person who beat him in the final of the 2000 Olympics is Kosei Inoue. So the two people that got in his way are two of the all-time great judoka of all time. And he actually carried the flag for us in the uh, opening ceremonies of the Athens Olympics in 2004. Pretty cool. That doesn't happen for judoka in Canada. Never happened before. Um, but um, in those 93 worlds, I got to see Jason Morris take a, take a bronze medal. And he fought against Jung of Korea, maybe one of the greatest judoka ever. Yamashita was just there. I got to just meet him because he happened to be there. And it was just so cool to see. Um, those 93 worlds were amazing. Darcel Yanzi took a medal in those worlds. Um, to just see that kind of level and the influence that had on me, I got to carry the, the flag for, as a 10 year old, I got to carry the flag for Uzbekistan in the opening ceremonies actually. Uh, so it was, it was just such a, a cool influence that 
super fortunate that, that they happened to decide to have the world in Hamilton in 93. I, I, weird location like what led to that i don't even know but um yeah like i guess you guys haven't had out of outside of the 2000 olympics obviously which may have may have had some impact on the judo community there i'm not there i'm not sure yeah i had a massive because i started judo in 1990 and then i uh my brother and i got really good but it was at a recreational club so the the coach at the time said can you go to the club up the road mm-hmm. where they're training for their kind of pretty much uh barcelona athens and then moving into sydney so right. between 95 and 2000 the government put a ton of money into national development of all sports like we just talked about before yeah and um but then i could volunteer at tournaments members doing hajimi and mate on the on the right. timer and right. being this teeny role going he went to the olympics and then you get to see them fight and you get to talk to them and right. for me that was just awesome to see like olympians in the flesh you got to watch yeah. them fight um and that sort of stuff so that was a massive kind of influence on me um, yeah yeah, that. Sure. But now we have we have the Olympics in 2032 um, are in Gold Coast, which is like the northern part of Australia. Um, so now I've got kids in my classes now that are 10 that are like, I'm going to those Olympics. So the Olympics or the world in your country is a massive influx of like kids going, I could be that. I could actually fight right. there. So I've got three kids that have gone 2032 Olympics. I'm going because it's in Australia. So Right. Yeah, I didn't realize that that had been inked so that's exciting yeah yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah that's that's super awesome like uh yeah growing up i they had such an impact on me like one of the one of the biggest moments in my whole life wasn't a judo thing but a, a memory that stands out to me so much in my life i guess you could say was donovan bailey winning the 96 olympics and the 100 meter dash as a canadian watching him win that race and how big it was and we had lost a gold medal 1988 famously ben johnson was stripped of his gold medal for steroid use and donovan bailey won the 96 Olympics and set a world record doing it. And I remember in my town of 3000 people, everyone is outside screaming out their door. He did it like down the street, like how, how big a moment, how, how sport can affect us in such a huge way and create such community is, is such a powerful thing. And, and uh, I think judo is especially um, powerful that way. They're, the bond that you create, that can you create with people doing judo together is such a powerful bond, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like most of my, most of my best friends in, in my life are all people that I trained with. I'm still very close with Sasha McMedovich and Sergio Pessoa and, and all these guys. And these are all the guys that I trained with for all those years. You don't get that same bond um, at work typically with normal work or with school. Yeah. yeah. That's a friend from school or whatever. But when you train with someone and put that much time in and try to beat the hell out of each other, there's yeah. something, it creates some kind of bond at a deeper level that I would probably estimate is similar to people in the military. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Even if you do like a trip, if you trip overseas trip with them, like if you go right. to a hard training place, like I remember like being at scuba or like Tokai, some sometimes you can have you know a bit of hard fights with someone and they beat you up and they drop the knee in or throw you against the wall right. and right. then i'm like evo evo decided to went to uh, london can you bash that guy for me because i can't bash him and then evo no, gets right. in there and you know sorts him out for you but it's just funny like it's that i've got you back you know like that teamwork right. and it, it really does it goes beyond that and it's kind of like with a, a lot of your judo friends it's like even if you quit judo today we're actually still going to be friends forever because it's beyond judo. Like we're friends, right. not because of judo. Judo right. was the start, but we're actually friends because not because of judo, but because of more than that. And I think that's right. just really, really cool. Yeah. I think, I think judoka as a general rule is a very passionate group of humble people. 
that are incredibly yeah. hardworking. And so when you put that together, you it's such strong character traits that drive you. You know, it's like this friend and I work so hard. Uh, Fraser Wales, another one, like a really, really close friend of mine. And when I was at the National Training Center, I used to watch Fraser and I would just go, I, I, if I can keep up with him, then I'm doing a good job. Because he was yeah. just a training animal and seventh. I just, pecs, I just want his pecs as big as him. Like that's he's that's he, physiologically he's pretty impressive, dude. He looks like uh, you know. Yeah. yeah, we fought in Miami World Cup. I think he beat me by Wazari, but it was a big Wazari, one of those big ones. It was a right, big right, one. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's they. It wasn't a nippon, but it was a big throw. Yeah, sure, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was I was seventy three and he was sixty, and we would do randori and periodically. This is the time when you could grab the legs. There was a height advantage, I'll say, but maybe it was for him because you'd be doing judo and all of a sudden before you know it, I'm on his shoulders, across his shoulders, getting tossed around and, and he'd just get under you so easily with this wide, strong base that, you know. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah great player. Yeah. So I guess the, the one other area that I was interested in is with this, as you were saying before, you, you're seeing more and more clubs operate at a full-time, um, a more full-time basis. And, and the influence that you've had on judo in Australia is where do you see, what's your sort of hopes and position in terms of where judo's going in Australia now? Well, I think um, judo's going awesome, but also Brazilian jiu-jitsu is just so popular, isn't it? Um, right. So I'm, I'm really keen on, like I, I read a stat online, I don't know if it's true, but there's 6,000 judo players in Australia, but there's probably 6,000 clubs, jiu-jitsu clubs in Australia, you know, oh. like so popular, like right. in my, so in Australia, I think there's maybe seven full-time judo clubs that, um, and some of them are like judo and jiu-jitsu or judo and MMA or mm -hmm. it's judo and, mm -hmm. but in my, in my town, there's seven full-time jiu-jitsu clubs. Oh my God. How big is your town? uh maybe four hundred thousand. right so a lot but in australia there's only seven full-time judo clubs nationwide but in my town alone there's seven, seven. full-time judo clubs uh jiu-jitsu clubs so right. you know, is just because anyway so what i'd love to see is more and more like my generation athlete uh players like myself Ivana santos dennis Iverson, Stephen brown daniel kelly we all now run our own facilities teaching mm -hmm. judo jiu-jitsu mma whatever so hopefully the next generation are going, oh, we can actually make a living from this. Right. And that can produce more full-time dojos, which will then right. produce, get more people through the doors, more people hopefully staying longer, mm -hmm. loving judo, benefiting their life. And I think the the, the bigger judo gets, the bigger it's going to get. You know, like right. when, when my club started, I had three members. And then those three people told three people. Right. And now I've got 250. They tell 250 people. And it just, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And right. so... Um, I'm really excited to see hopefully more people going, oh, you can make a living from judo right. and then start investing in a dojo and, and that sort of stuff. So that's kind of where I do see it heading. Right. Um, and uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. That's the one thing that um, we were, we had talked about a little bit before we, we started chatting um, on recording, I guess, is, is that taking judo and making it more professional is a necessity for judo to grow. It doesn't make you a bad person because you want to make a living. And in fact, for you to do the job that you need to do is looking at it in a professional way is going to vastly influence um, how big of an impact you can have. You can impact more people. You can teach more people how to live a healthy lifestyle. As not everyone's going to be competitive and not everyone should be competitive. And it's not a necessity for everyone to be competitive. 10% of your students become athletes that's a, a lot of people so that means you're helping 90 percent of these people um per, 
become judoka, become better people, create, create these incredible social bonds. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And, um, and there's still a million recreational judo clubs out there, and that's awesome. Um, but you find a lot of recreational clubs, um, sometimes they, they ebb and flow. So there was one in Australia that had like 150 members, but then one coach moves away, another one moves away because it's a maybe a mining town, and before you know it, the club's shut down. Right. But if someone if someone ran it as a business, it would actually continue continue going. Right. I know with my um, I have a University of Judo website where I've got like 2,000 videos probably now, just just whatever you can think of. Type in Taitoshi, search it, and there's a million. It's a paid subscription service, like a monthly kind of subscription. And I had someone email me, say, "Why would I pay you thirty dollars a month to access all your content when in my club I've got three eighth eighth degree black belts and five seventh degrees and three sixth degrees and ten fifth degrees?" I'm like. Well, obviously, my content's not for you. If you have that many people in your club, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But it's so some recreational clubs can have a large volunteer base to keep it going. Mm-hmm. But most over after a time, it just fizzes out. And so, right. or they might stay 30 members the entire time. Uh, it's It's been going for 30 years and they'd have 30 members forever. But for me, I'm like, if we can get big clubs um, with, whatever numbers they can handle that's sustainable for a long period of time. And it's going to help society and, and people kind of grow and get better. Right. Yeah. Like the different parts of the world, you know, I don't, I, I'm, I recently moved to the Northern part of Canada where I was explaining 1.5 million kilometers squared. We have 45,000 people to live here. There's many communities in the territory that I live. You can only get there by airplane. So for us to go to Inuvik, where we have an operational dojo, that is a two-hour flight from where I live, and I can't drive there unless I drive. It's about a 54-hour drive. I have to drive down to another province, across a province, up through another territory, and across. Um, I can't drive there any other way. It's a, it's a two-hour flight. So um, this content being available, yeah, it may not be necessary if you are uh, a premium athlete at Tokai University. Then maybe we don't. you're not going to use your, yourself as a reference. Maybe not. Um, maybe Shohei Ono is not going to check out how to do Taitoshi. But there's a lot of people that don't have that kind of access and making judo more accessible really goes back to that's what Kano was doing. Kano, Jigoro mm-hmm. Kano, after he founded judo, sent judoka throughout the world to teach it, to make it more accessible. And this is sort of a modern version of what he's doing in a much more financially accessible way. Yeah, yeah, because there's heaps of recreational judo clubs. I, went, I was on holidays once. I went to a local judo club. The level was so low, I was shocked at how low the level of instruction was. Like, I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy knows nothing. Not judging. My green belt's no more than this guy, and he's a black belt. Right. Imagine if he just goes, 30 bucks a month, I'm going to go on Matt's website, and I'm going to actually upskill myself. Right. And, and I'm like, these are the people I want to help. Guys like this that just right. don't have the time to search YouTube or don't have time to research or whatever. Right. They can actually find a higher level of instruction than what they currently know. Right. That's just going to help their club. And it's going to help them, hopefully. You know what I mean? Like, it's they're the people with the regional people you want to kind of want right. to help. Right. And that's, which will then raise the level of judo because it'd be more enjoyable. And then um, and it and that just upskills them. Yeah, and, and, and with learning becomes retention. You know, when kids feel like they uh, they learned everything that a coach can teach, they might not hang around as long. If that coach continues to improve and get better and teaches them new things, they're going to stay longer. If they stay longer, they're more likely to want to hang around and maybe become competitive or maybe become a sensei themselves one day. So 
it leads to more and more of it. So it, it's, it's a really important thing that a learning curve can still exist. And as, it, as judoka, we know all of us can always learn. I'm always learning judo. I'm always watching yeah. things. I'm watching your content or I'm watching someone else's content or I'm watching the tour. And we're always learning things and taking that information in. That's part of what makes judo so beautiful. And so if, if coaches can keep learning, then they're going to retain more, which is going to produce a bigger worldwide judo community, which is going to make better individuals uh, as throughout the world. So it's yeah that's a huge like for me one of my favorite things to teach is just the break fall the idea that you should be a judoka for a day if you learn how to fall safely you're less likely to get hurt you're more likely to stay in sport you're less likely to die you're less likely to break your hip so just um we started doing single day seminars we call learn to fall for all it's a free it's a free seminar where we come in we just teach you how to fall and that's just a hint of what judo is but we've sort of monopolized how to fall so if i can if people just learn how to fall they'll have a, a more fulfilling life in in my opinion is the poetic way that i think about it so to that to that end um just, I guess, what, where can people find you? I know you have a, a number of things. So you, you mentioned you have university, the universe, judo university. Uh, so you have judo university, you have beyond grappling your YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah. It's all the social media is just, yeah, just search up beyond grappling and, and go from there. And if people have any questions or want me to clarify anything I said, I'm more than happy to kind of answer emails and Instagram in, inboxes and that sort of stuff. So yeah. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Josh. It was really fun. Yeah, thanks, man. It was great. It was great to finally talk to you in person to some degree. And I hope one day we uh, cross paths in person, actually. And have a rumble. Have a randori. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, man. No worries. Thanks a lot. Yeah.